All right, everybody, we are going to go ahead and uh, jump in for the evening. Before we get into anything with Revelation, uh, where is John Vandalin at right now? Is John in here? Did John just exit? Okay, he, okay. <laughs> John, I, I, rumor has it, Greg, what, you said he... You, I heard, you heard 3 o'clock. He got up at 3 morning. o'clock this morning to start cook, preparing everything for us. So, uh, huge thank you to John. Can we just give a round of applause? <clears throat> That's a lot of work right there and a great meal. So thank you to John and Callie for their work there. Uh, We are going to dive into Revelation chapter 4. And although we're only going to plan to go through chapter 5 next week, and then we'll finish the summer series, uh, 4 and 5 are really sort of setting up the rest of the book of Revelation in a sense. And so uh, what you see in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is the unfolding of God's purposes for the rest of history, culminating in the final return of Christ, final judgment, uh, and, and the new creation and all those things that are coming, and the one who unfolds that drama that leads to judgment and new creation is the Lamb who was slain in chapter 5. So you really see God's sovereignty over all the rest of history is, is what Revelation 4 and 5 are setting up for us. Uh, Don Carson had a very simple thing that he said. I heard him say this years ago on a YouTube uh, lecture, and uh, I never forgot it. In fact, I wrote it in my Bible years ago. Uh, This is something you can hold on to, very simple for Revelation 4 and 5. So if you've been following along, chapter 1 introduces Jesus in that vision and John. Chapters 2 and 3 cover the seven churches of Revelation that we've covered for these last several weeks. And then chapters 4 and 5 set up the unfolding of the rest of history, which is the rest of the book of Revelation. But here's something easy to remember. Revelation chapter 4 is like a setting, and chapter 5 is like the drama. So Revelation 4 is painting the picture of God's throne room, and there's plenty of drama in chapter 4. Don't, don't get me wrong. There's plenty of drama going on here. But think of it as sort of a, a setting, and then the drama of the Lamb coming before the throne to take the scroll is the drama of chapter 5. Who is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seal? That's the drama. So chapter 4 is the setting, God's throne room. Chapter 5 is the drama unfolding of who is worthy to unfold God's purposes in, for the rest of history, which is the slain Lamb, uh, the Lord Jesus. So Uh, Jerry, can you pray for us? And then, Greg, could you just read us straight through the text uh, of chapter 4, and then we'll go back and work through it. Yes, sir. Gracious Father, we are um, humbled as we come before you um, at your holiness as um, explained in this text. And, Lord, we would confess that uh, we maybe haven't always revered you as um, as we ought. And so tonight, Lord, as we... Um, tackle a passage that's far too great to um, explain or maybe even understand. We're so grateful that you've given us your word and your Holy Spirit to um, convict and encourage us through your word. Thank you that uh, your word and through your word and through your son, you've given us all we need for life and godliness. We um, are thankful tonight that Faith comes from hearing and hearing by your word and that you sanctify us by your truth. And we pray that that's what you would do uh, tonight through this incredible passage. And we ask, Lord, that um, we would have a better understanding of your holiness and respond um, well to that um, because of what we study tonight. And we commit this night to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, 
Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads." From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. Jerry, can you just give us a word here, opening word, reflections on this chapter as a whole? What are just some basic things we should be looking for, some basic takeaways? What's going on here? Yeah, I think the holiness of of God just has to jump out of of this passage. And uh, as Schreiner explained, it's just unparalleled. There isn't anyone like him, which I guess is kind of by definition, and, uh, and, and we need to be in awe of him in the same way as uh, these, these angels are. Um, I think one thing that's uh, probably a good, I would kind of recommend, even in the next week if you can, is to go through the book of Revelation and to look at what the people and the angels uh, in heaven, how they praise the Lord, kind of all these indented passages. And that's a kind of a fascinating study at what they're saying about uh, the Lord Jesus and about God the Father, um, it's, it's incredible, and it's maybe convicting to me that it's different than the way I go about my life as they are with him, and uh, they know him, obviously, in a, in a way that we will know him someday. But uh, a lot to look forward to and a lot to be convicted about both, I think. Greg, some opening words just about this chapter in general. Um, I'm going to go to application first and then try to start diving in a little bit. But this is one of those passages that is always relevant for us. It's always something we need to see. It's something we need to read. Because like you were saying, it's, it's, a, it's an unfolding, it's a vision of God as He is in His holiness, in His glory. Um, and if there's anything we need to build us up, to sustain us, to help us endure in faith. It's a greater, clearer vision of who God is. 
And this is one of the best places in Scripture. I mean, God's revealed throughout the whole Bible, but there are some places where, like Isaiah chapter 6, mm-hmm. Ezekiel sees things, and those are background to our, our, our text uh, this evening. But there are some places where it's like God shows up, and the text is describing as best it can the God that's revealing Himself. And those moments are, are absolutely essential for us because, like you said, there's no one like him. There's no one like our God. The psalmist says that in one of the psalms. I can't remember which one it is. Um, and he is absolutely unique. And the more we get to know God for who he is, the more we will have to agree with that. There's no one like him. And, and it's not saying like that in a negative way, but it's completely positive. Um, if we were to come into the presence of God if we were to experience what John saw, it would overwhelm us. Like it, it, our senses, like we wouldn't be able to grasp all that we were seeing. We wouldn't be able to make sense of it all. Um, we, like we would literally be at a loss for words. And so I'm thankful that God gave John words to uh, describe what he saw. And remember, as we read this and we read through Revelation, we are not to try to draw out right. on paper what we're reading, okay? What we're reading is communicating the character of what we're reading about. We don't want to try to draw it, um, even if you're good at art. I uh, would not recommend this because you're going to see some freaky, scary things that I don't think were ever intended to be visually represented. Like, the, the, the visual is is by faith, it's by the heart as we read this and the reality of what's being talked about lands on us. It's a different kind of encountering of the truth. Um, and so we have to keep that in mind because we're going to see some creatures and some things um, and, and God does not intend us to try to draw these out. So, oh, that's what they look like. No, because as we're going to see, you know, there's similarities with Ezekiel, Isaiah, um, and some differences. It's like prophetic literature is going... It goes deeper and farther than a visual representation could ever capture, and we have to keep that in mind. It's interesting that it's almost as though, I think Carson said this, that it's almost as though as John is writing, God is guiding his words so that we don't even, we're not even tempted to violate the second commandment to make no Mm -hmm. image of God. So there's no, you cannot figure out what God the Father, quote, looks like, which is not even the right way to talk, right? Biblically, he's spirit. He's not... a body, but but um, you you can't. What, what what instead you get a description of is you get a description of some some emeralds and jewels that sort of reflect God's glory, and then John spends the rest of his time not describing God, describing everything around God. And so I think this is amazing. God is so transcendent that John can't describe God. John doesn't attempt to give you a sketch of God the Father on the throne. He gives you the briefest description using some jewel language about glory and refracted beauty, and then he goes out and he describes everything around God, and it's, it's almost as though. God is so exalted that just to describe the worship around his throne should be enough for us to understand how transcendent God the Father is, how absolutely beyond he is. So John spends much of his time describing the creatures around God and worshiping God, I think, to tell us something about our place in the, in the whole story. So, Greg, can you start us off at the beginning yes. of the chapter? <laughs> All right, chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read it again. After this, now, pause there. <laughs> I know we said we we're going to read, but let's pause there. When he says after this, he's not talking uh, temporally talking about sequentially. Like, um, John is seeing all of this, and you have to relate it in some sort of order, okay? He can't describe all the visions at the same time. You have to say, well, I saw this, and after that, I saw this, and after that, I saw this, and it's not necessarily communicating, well, this happened, and then later in time, this happened, and then later in time, that happened. 
Because remember, we've talked about this. Go back and listen to all that we talked about on Revelation, how to interpret it. But there, there, there's, um, what's, what's the word? Recapitulation, things repeat um, from different angles and all kinds of stuff. So it's not always necessarily just going, you know, 5 o'clock, then 6 o'clock, then 7 o'clock, if you want to think that way. It's not always chronological. So when he says after this, well, what had he been looking at before that? The vision of Jesus amongst the seven churches. And the, the, he got the letters to the seven churches. And so after seeing that, he sees this, okay? Um, and this is what he sees. Behold. Uh, whenever you see that word, behold, it's like, hey, pay close attention to what you're about to hear. Okay, that's, that's a marker to draw our attention. So after the first vision, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And he hears a voice, the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, it could be the voice of Jesus. There's a good case that can be made for that. Other times when you have apocalyptic literature, you have heavenly messengers announcing what's about to happen or calling the prophet up. Um, I'm not going to try to persuade you either way. I mean, I, I, I think it could be Jesus since he's the one showing this. Um, I'd probably lean a little bit that way. But anyway, he, John hears this voice, and you know we think about the power of the Word of God. Jesus says, come up here, and what happens? John is transported up. Look at verse 2. Um, says, at once I was in the Spirit. So he says, come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. And then he was in the Spirit. So that doesn't mean like his spirit was kind of, you know, we, we think about the way pagans think about this. Oh, my body stayed here, and my soul was literally ripped from my body. No, it's, a, it's, it's, an, it's an experience only a prophet can have. John, in the Holy Spirit, I think, was transported to heaven to have this vision. And he says, look at the end of verse 1, okay? I will show you what must take place after this. Look at that word must. That's an amazing word. Not might, not what I hope will take place after this, but what must. Meaning there is an inevitability. There is... The sovereignty of God all over everything that we're about to look at in the rest of Revelation, God says it must happen. And if God says something must happen, that means it will happen. Okay? And I mean, keep in mind the biggest picture Jesus ascended, his people triumph through faithfulness to him. He comes back, destroys his enemies, judgment and the new heavens and new earth. Let's just keep the biggest picture in mind there. That must take place. And it will take place. And that's good news. And it, th that's exactly right. I think there's a reason then to back that up, that the word throne last, I'm, I may be counting, I may be missing one, but I've counted 13 uses of the word throne in these 11 mm. verses. So there are more, the word throne shows up more often than there are verses in this chapter. What's that? I mean, just, just to give you a sense, verse two, let me just listen to the word throne. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Verse 3, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald around the throne. Oh, I missed one. There's one right there. And we're at 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 20. In my counting, I had missed that one. So, so there's maybe 14 references to throne in that chapter. I should probably count again. But uh, maybe there's 25. I don't know how many there are. But there, there's a lot of references to throne here, clearly emphasizing, guess what? God is sitting on the throne. So whatever chaos is going on in chapters 2 and 3, again, there's a lot of chaos going on. The throne of Satan is in Pergamum, right? The throne of Satan. And so they're scared of Satan's powers in Pergamum and what Satan might persecute us. Well, guess who has the real throne? 
the, the, the king of kings. He, he's the one reigning. He's got the true throne above all thrones. And so John looks away from the earthly throne of Caesar or whatever it might be, and he looks up and he sees, no, there is a God sitting on the throne. And that's the throne above all thrones. That's the throne of sovereignty, of dominion, of power, uh, of supremacy. And yes, these are the things that must take place because they're coming from the God who sits on that throne. Yeah, I wanna, there's I no make, doubt. Oh, oh go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Okay, I want to I make one quick comment on the end of verse 1 because this is important for, for just reading the book. When he says, show you what must take place after this. Yes, the rest of the book is going to deal with things that are in the future, but it's also going to be dealing with things in the present and things that were past. And so we don't want to say that this is strictly saying everything after this, everything, every detail is only future from us right now. No, it's, it's going to contain a lot of the future because it has to, but it's also going to get to the future by means of the past and the present experience. And you're going to find both past, present, and future as you read through the book of Revelation, like chapter 12 especially, mm -hmm. refers to the, what? The ascension of Christ. So we can't say that Jesus hasn't ascended yet because we haven't encountered it yet in the book of Revelation. So just keep that principle in mind. It will help us um, not get you know, stuck off this side in a rut or on another side in a rut. It'll keep us balanced. It'll keep us on the road uh, the right way as we read through Revelation. So again, it's gonna, yes, it's going to deal with the future, but it's also going to deal with the past and the present as it gets to the future. Keep that in mind. I like that thought about the, the going back to the thrones where it's no doubt here that Jesus is king, that God's king. He's on the throne. And that now that we know that, you know, you just think, and Greg started us with this, and good application is say, it's convicting. When we sin, we're not just sinning against each other. You know, it says David, when he sinned, he said, my sin is, you know, primarily against God. And so he is king, and that's what makes sin so evil there. When, so I think it's convicting in that. And then how encouraging, how encouraging that the king of heaven would send his son when we had no way to approach. And, you, and when we read this, you just see, even those who are perfect in heaven, the 24 elders, the four beasts, they, they approach with uh, such holiness, you know, and such awe. And so we would have no way to approach the Father in heaven except through the blood of Christ. And so, you know, I hope that this is highly, and Greg, you started us again like that, I really do hope this is highly applicable for encouragement and conviction uh, both tonight. Yeah, look at verse 2 again. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So here's, here's the closest you get to the description of the one seated on the throne, verse 3. And he who sat there had the appearance of, what does he look like? Well, it doesn't give you any sort of careful explanation. It says, the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So that's it. There's no specificity here. It's just glittering glory. It's absolute splendor. It's blinding. It's breathtaking. It's astonishing. If you were standing there, you'd be on your face. And like you're saying, John, okay, so here's something to keep in mind. God is both transcendent in his holiness, right? Holy, holy, holy. He is beyond us. He is, uh, he is other than us in many ways. At the same time, he is also a God of, uh, of intimacy and nearness and, and of love and of care, right? Both of those things are true. 
a lot of theological errors come from uh, knocking one of those truths out of the Bible. Mm -hmm. So those are like wings on a plane. You have to have both of those things to fly. And so God is a God of transcendent holiness who would crush us and incinerate us in his wrath if we were left to ourselves. Mm. At the same time, he's a God of incredible compassion and nearness and love. So the next chapter, the lamb who was slain comes forward. So you have a God on the throne. You cannot even come near that, that God. You, you cannot approach that throne. The, the angels are covering their eyes. You're far away from, with a sea of glass in between you and the throne. I mean, there is no going near this God. And yet there is going near this God through the slain lamb. It's this amazing conjunction of things. Mm -hmm. You can't go near God, and yet you can draw near to God through the blood of Jesus. So left to ourselves, we are going to be absolutely obliterated before God. But through the blood of the lamb, God is our father. He is the one who cares. He's our Abba Father. He's the one who graciously cares about all the details of our lives. How in the world? So we've got to believe both. American Christianity is, is, is in no danger of having too much of the transcendence of God. Mm -mm. American Christianity has the God as a teddy bear approach to God. God God's the big, the great, big, lovable God, the great, big teddy bear in the sky, the grandfather in the sky, and God just, all he is is nothing but uh, just nice and so likable and all these things. And you, you think there's no sense of fear. There's no sense of transcendence. There's no sense of hatred of sin. There's no sense of holy, holy, holy. There's no sense of angels trembling with fear before this God. No, he's both. He's transcendent, and he's eminent through Christ, and we cannot neglect either of those truths. Th thoughts on those two themes in the Bible? I want to focus on the transcendence part. Um, we are very familiar with the Ten Commandments, and obviously as Christians, we're not under the law. But I want you to think about what we've said about God here and how he's described and the limited nature of that. And, you know, in Revelation in general, we're not supposed to draw these things out but li listen to something here. Um, that's why John doesn't say, like, it, he, he never encourages us to try to, like, create a visual representation of what we're seeing. Listen to Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 6. We know this, but think about this afresh, okay? He says, you shall have no other gods before me. This is uh, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. That's comprehensive. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Why did God forbid Israel from making any kind of image of him, of God, because the way the human mind works is simply this. What we visualize as that God is, that's what we limit him to. And God being a fundamentally spiritual, not physical, like God doesn't exist in and of himself with a body, you can't contain God in any physical image. No image can ever come close to capturing him all of who he is, all his holiness, his, all his attributes, righteousness, goodness, grace, truth, nothing that we can draw, nothing that we can, we can form with our hands can ever capture God fully as he is. And the moment we make an image and say, okay, we got, this is what God's like. We have just reduced who God is in our minds and we will worship him wrongly because of that. That's why one of the biggest 
emphases of the Protestant Reformation was to get images out of the church. Why? Because we, our, our worship is diminished. Our, our thoughts of God are diminished and degraded when we say, well, well, this is exactly what Jesus looked like when he was on the cross. Or, or you know, we, God's like this, and we've got the stained glass, and it's just, you know, uh, well, I get the, the, the desire to want to create awe. But the problem is we start to limit God to what we see. And God can never be fully represented by what we see. And so, one, that's why God told his people never to craft images. Why? Because that's what we're going to be drawn to. We become like what we worship. Greg Beal said that. The Psalms teach that. Like when you worship an idol, you become like what you're worshiping. And, and what we worship is, is what we think about the most. And as A.W. Tozer says, we're, we're basically defined by what we consi- who we consider God to be. And, and the greater our thoughts of God or whatever, the lesser our thoughts, the lesser our worship. And so we see this amazing picture of God here. And we say picture, but we're supposed, like they were saying, like we're supposed to, to hear this, read this, and be like, he's beyond description. Like, and and we, like we, we, uh, we dishonor him when we try to draw out and say God is exactly, you know, with a body part or a head or like we, we can't go there. Okay, can I just jump yeah, in? Go ahead, I think what's interesting about that is God wants to be known by what he's done, not by how he looks in a picture. God mm. wants to be defined by what I, I am, who I am. I will be who I will be. I, I'm going to be defined by what I do in history. So that's why God wants the doctrines of himself taught in scripture for us to know them deeply. That's far more important than having a visual image. I mean, my goodness, someone could go to heaven and see whatever you can see up there, but if they don't have a true understanding of God, a right knowledge of God, they're not gonna know God. We know God not through images, but through words, right? We know him through doctrine, through teaching, through what is taught in scripture. The Holy Spirit illuminates that to our heart and we come to know God. Paul speaks about us knowing God. There's nothing wrong with us saying we know God, but we don't, we don't draw an image of God. We, we know him through what he's done, his works, his actions, the, the cross, the resurrection uh, in particular, and that's how we, we come to know God. Wouldn't you say a big part of sanctification is just knowing him better? I mean, that is what sanctification is. And so, you know, a study like tonight, I think is, is great for our sanctification to have a little better idea of who God really is, like Tozer. It's no, there is no more important topic or doctrine to, to study than this right here. And you know how, if, you, if you've been to a wedding recently, uh, I mean, it, it is an amazing thing. Every single time, it never fails uh, when the music changes, right? And the minister says, okay, like, you know, and everybody stands up, and the doors in the back of the room open, right? And, and the bride comes through that door. And it never ceases to just be a stunning moment, right? Every single time. But here's something that, that I've grown in my appreciation for in the last 10, 15 years uh, as I've gotten a little older, and you, you all do this, I'm sure. If you're able to, of course you want to see the bride, right? We all turn, you know, maybe there's a tall person on the other side. You're like, okay, where's the bride? I want to see the bride. You're, you're bending to see where the bride is. And uh, you see the bride, and that's stunning. But you know what? I've grown in my love of seeing the groom at that moment, right? You want to see his face, you don't really care what he looks like. But you, you want to see his face, right? You want to see what the groom's face looks like. You look over at the groom, and when the bride is walking down the aisle, do you do the, am I the only one who does this? Surely you do this sometimes. When the bride is halfway down, I want to see his face. Because there's something about seeing, I mean, sometimes you'll just see tears suddenly are coming down his face, perhaps. He's just got this stunned look of joy on his face. He's thinking, 
Who made a mistake to let this happen? Like, what, what is going on right now that this is allowed to happen right now? Her, her dad is approving of this? What has happened? And so he, he's amazed. She's, she's coming down to be handed to him for life. And there's something about seeing his face that tells you something about her, doesn't it? Not looking, at, looking away from her and seeing his reaction to her tells you something about her because it tells you about his valuing of her. And I don't want to stretch it too far, but that's kind of what's happening in this text. We, we look away from the one on the throne, and we look at all those around him worshiping mm -hmm. him, and we see what they're doing in reaction to God, and their reaction tells us a lot more about God. Does that make sense? So, so now the, the camera angle shifts away from the throne to all those around the throne, and we're going to see these elders and angels and what they're doing, and it's going to, I hope, increase our awe of the one they're looking at, the, the one that they catch a glimpse of. So let's look here, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, just I got, I got to mention the thunder, the thunder and lightning here. Um, We've had some. Yeah, did y'all have y'all experienced yeah, yeah, any of that yeah, recently? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How many of y'all still do not have power at your house? The Henry's, okay, yeah. the, the Rences, you guys yeah. don't, that's right. How many of you lost power for more than an hour? For more than five hours? More than 10 hours? Okay, somewhere in there. We, we lost it for, for a pretty good bit of time. You don't know what you have until it's gone with electricity. It's an amazing thing. But, By the way, if I shout out, like, I'm like, yes, in the middle, that's because my father-in-law said we got it back. Yeah, you're making a text so, message that your yeah, power's back on. We were driving home, and Kelly hit the garage door button thinking there's not a chance, and it started going up, and we were like, whoa, <laughs> that was an amazing thing when the garage started opening. So um, a moment here to talk about the thunder and lightning. Now, we do have a fresh awareness of what that's like when the wind is really coming. And, and you see how many trees on the highway, on the exit ramps and such, just the trees were snapped in half and torn up from the roots. It's just an amazing thing. Um, back at the time of Scripture, there was no atomic bomb, right? There, there were no nuclear missiles. All these things we think of as huge, those didn't exist. They didn't have a bunch of CGI movies with crazy stuff going on and aliens and all this kind of stuff. They don't, they don't have that stuff. So when they think of big and loud and massive and terrifying displays of power, what are they thinking of? They're thinking of thunderstorms. They're thinking of lightning and thunder. That's, that's what's on their mind. And so um, th thoughts about this. You, you mentioned that, Jerry, in your text about uh, the thunderstorm. Yeah, I like Carson just talked about growing up in the Midwest, and I don't know that you know, the, those of us who grew up in the Midwest have anything on you know, what we experienced last night. But boy, it is. Let's really make a big deal of thunderstorms to our families, I think. That's what got me, is to think, we ought to talk about this. Like, this is a great picture of who our God is, of how powerful he is. And when you're, like last night, there's no doubt of who's on the throne, and it's not us. That's for sure. And we can be thankful for that, and we can rejoice in that. I think we can kind of train our children, like, they're a little bit scary, but... That's a great picture that, that how loud the thunder is, how brilliant the lightning is as it, as it goes across. We grew up loving thunderstorms because that meant if it rained more than an inch and a half, then we got to go fishing or we got to go to Kansas City and watch the Royals. Now, they're terrible. <laughs> but at that point, we knew we didn't have to irrigate the corn and we could go do something fun. So we would want to put water in the rain gauge when dad wasn't looking <laughs> to get it to an inch and a half. He always smelled a rat. But it was something that we loved, thunderstorms, when we were growing up. 
And uh, I think that love, but when I read this, uh, it, it just, it escalated in me to say, let's really see every one of those God showing us who he is. And I think we should make a big deal to our, to our families and to say, this is really good for us. We're getting a little bit of what uh, um, John's describing here as he is, was in heaven. Well, doesn't this also take us back to uh, Mount Sinai? Uh, when Israel came before the mountain, um, and you know, there was trumpets, but it's like thundering and smoking, and you know, it's just everything that's terrifying because it's absolutely outside of our ability to control, to to minimize, to um, you know, to negate. Like we we can't. You don't go to a thunderstorm and like temper it. Um, you you go inside and you hide, depending on how how bad it is. Um, and you know, you think about those things, and it, and it's. It's communicating something about the presence of God. Like, we do not approach Him. I think you, you mentioned this Sunday in your sermon, like from Hebrews 12. Like, you know, we, we come to God. He is a consuming fire. Like, we don't come to God haphazardly. We don't come to God casually. We don't come to God, you know, you know on our own merits, thinking, ah, you know, everything's... Like, we, Jesus is a friend of sinners, but when we think about approaching God in the fullness of who He is, like all this imagery should say, you know what? I probably need to be careful. Mm -hmm. um, I, I need to watch what I say. Um, I need to watch how I act um, because I'm in the presence of the one who, when He shows up, mountains go to hide. Um, that, I mean, that's who He is and what He does. And so, you know, think, think about life. I mean, I was in Georgia, like we have trees and hills, so we don't see the storms coming. We just hear about them before it's too late. And then, you know, but my wife grew up in the Midwest in uh, Indianapolis and all that. And so like it's flat. And so you can see these things forming. Mm -hmm. And like, that's why everybody had a tornado shelter because you knew like you had time to see it. Oh, that's a tornado. Let's go get safe. But like we, we, we fear it down here because we can't see it. But when I've gone out West, like I actually it actually unnerves me because it's like, I see too much. I don't want to see one of those big storms because I know what they can do. That's good. So just for the sake of time, we won't linger on this too long, but it talks in verse four about 24 thrones and there are 24 elders clothed in white with golden crowns on their head. There's a debate about whether these are, into, these are human beings representing God's people or angels representing God's people. I think I slightly favor the angels, but I'm open to a discussion on that. Here, however, you, however you view it, uh, here's what you see. 24 thrones, I think, is representative of the 12 tribes in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament. 24 is a symbolic number to say all God's people in all of time, all God's true people, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, that's 24 thrones. And these could be angels who are the elders. Remember, elders often represent the people. So you, you could have uh, these angels representing God's people in heaven, which you see with the angels of the churches, right? There's an angel representing the church that's on earth. And so this could be 24 angels representing all God's people uh, on earth, but they're in heaven. It could be 24 believers who represent them. However you want to view it, I think it's the idea is this. We, as God's people, have representation in heaven. Yes, ultimately in Jesus, but secondarily here in this sense. And there's a connection point again between us little insignificant Christians on earth and the throne room of God. There's a connection between you, if you know Jesus right now, and the throne room of God. You have representatives, these elders, standing in the place of God's people, representing us before God in heaven. And again, it's showing that although we may seem weak and insignificant here, my goodness, we are in the throne room of heaven up there with representatives and elders in our place. Thoughts on that? 
Reminds me a little bit of John the Baptist in John 3.30, let him increase, let me decrease. Because I think we have a pretty good idea of how proper understanding, how much of an understanding of we have of God's holiness kind of dependent on how much we're thinking of ourselves. And so this passage hopefully will take the eyes, our eyes off us, which is always the problem. And, uh, you know, each of us feel like we're the most important one around down deep probably, and we will instead say, no, let's shift that um, focus off ourselves because right here it's, again, easy to see who's king. And I think that's what John the Baptist, when he was talking about Jesus, we could say that here in this passage as well. So let's jump here in the middle of verse 6. You can see uh, it sort of starts a new paragraph. Uh, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Uh, Greg, some thoughts about these strange creatures here. Yeah, I figured you were going to ask me about that, so I was ready. I was, I was ready for this. Um, so think about, guys, when you, you think about a king sitting on his throne, usually you know, it's not just a little old rinky-dink wooden chair that he sits in. Like, it's, a, it's usually elevated. you got to have steps that go up to it, um, you know, marble steps, some kind of precious, you know, hard stone. Um, usually the throne's, like, made of gold. It's got, like, you know, really the most expensive fabrics. And oftentimes around the throne, at the, or at least at the base of the throne, you've got some, like, powerful creature like bulls or lions. I think Solomon had lions mm-hmm. um, at the base of his throne. And so, you know, you come into a throne room like that and you see, and they're usually gold. It's not, again, it's not like somebody got some mud and clay and, you know, put something together. Like this is elaborate. This is expensive. This is wealth right here. And it, it, it all communicates the worth and the authority um, of the one seated on the throne. Think about this. Now, around the throne or in the midst of the throne on each side, so all around the throne of God, um, don't think carved creatures. Like that, because that, that's where our minds usually go. These are living creatures. So a throne, the way we think of it, is impressive enough. But imagine going to a throne in which at the base of the throne wasn't a, a carved image of a creature, but an actual living creature and a powerful living creature at that. Um, that's what we see here. Now, again, like Solomon's throne, he had lions there, I think, um, and, and again, it's, it's kind of hard to know. There's like, depending on where you go in church history, there's going to be a lot of opinion about what these living creatures represent. Some older people, you know, thought each one represented one of the four gospels. I'm not really convinced of that. <laughs> I mean, it, because depending on who you read, they all say a different gospel for each one. Um, my, my best assessment of this is it's, it's representative of all of God's creation. And so, and and think about it, God is seated on a throne and these are around his throne, meaning God exercises sovereignty over everything. He is in control of everything. Okay. From the, from the, the biggest possible picture, God reigns over all of the created order at all times. Um, and, you know, some, some have said like the, the eyes, you know, on, on the outside and, and, and within is, is representative of the fact that God, you know, sees everything everywhere all the time. And, you know, you think about 
what you can like what you can see right now, literally see and be aware of. You know, there's some people. You know, they, they have minds that can comprehend a good bit. I think it was Spurgeon said at one point he, he counted, he had like eight different <laughs> trains of thought going simultaneously at the same time. I'm doing good to keep one going, <laughs> um, you know. But I mean, think about how much you can see and be aware of at any one moment. All that you, of all that you know, all that you've learned, okay? God is aware of every single detail at every conceivable level of every single thing that's going on everywhere. From the microscopic level to the big zoom, you know, the, the, like YouTube, you zoom out and you see like the whole universe. God sees it at every single stage. He comprehends it at every single stage. He knows everything about everything. Nothing escapes him. That's why he can be sovereign over everything. That's good. good. Uh, let's continue here. They, they cry out, holy, 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 similar to Isaiah 6, in fact, very similar. Verse 9, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Here's the reason why, for, because... You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Just a quick, quick comment here. In our society, uh, increasingly, people are going to just grow up and be more biblically illiterate. They're just not going to know as much about the Bible. And it's, for some people, that's not even their fault. It's just they're, they're raised in an environment where it's just not taught to them like it perhaps once was. So you're, you're going to run into college students who are well-educated so far as it goes, and they're going to get a, a really good degree or a diploma is going to be you know, at a great university. But they may not know that the Bible has two testaments in it. Uh, they may not know what the big numbers and the small numbers are in a Bible. Like, what, are these sections? Are they chapters? Are these ver- like what? How, what is this? They may not know that you know the, the New Testament's one fourth of the Bible, the Old Testament's three quarters, and on and on and on. They may not know virtually any of that stuff. They might not know hardly any of the details. So when we do evangelism now, it's different in some ways than when you did evangelism in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. I wasn't around for most of that time, but uh, when you did evangelism back then, you could pretty much assume a general understanding of the basics of the Bible. People had a general respect for the Bible, even if they didn't read it, right? They they would at least have a, you know, if you quote it, they go, oh, it's the Bible, you know, I'm going to take that seriously, generally. And a lot of things could be assumed. You could use language and people assumed like, you remember the D. James Kennedy evangelism explosion program from the 90s? That whole program assumed that people believed in God and heaven and hell from the, from the start. So you, you walk up to someone, you knock on their door in the evangelism explosion, which was a generally very good idea, and you say, hey, if you, you, know, you don't just start with this comment, you talk to them for a while, but then eventually you get to a very important, intense question. If you were to die right now, uh, why should God let you into his heaven? And people would say, well, I've, I've lived a good life. And you say, well, that's, that's not the right answer. It's actually through Christ's perfect life. And you explain the gospel. And sometimes people would become Christians through that process, and it's wonderful. Nowadays, you can't really start with the assumptions that evangelism explosion started with, because people don't believe in God. They don't believe in heaven and hell. They don't believe in salvation. They don't believe in any of that stuff. So, so we've got to start further back in our gospel explanation. So it's almost like pre-evangelism. You have to do as you get towards the evangel, the, the gospel, right? So you really need to start building earlier back. And here's, I think, a critical doctrine that I think we've got to use. And I don't want to be a hypocrite. I, want, I need to use this more when I'm talking to non-Christians to be persuasive. Let me be kind here. You know, if, if the best you can do is say to some stranger, Jesus died for your sins, 
That's better than not saying anything. I mean, that's great. Okay, if you're going to say something, say that. That's great. But, but I think we need to lay something even before we get to Jesus died on, for, for our sins. Here's a couple things we've got to get in place before Jesus died for you makes any sense. Like, who's Jesus? Why does someone have to die for me? What does that have to do with anything? Like, who cares? So here's, here's where you start. It's where this chapter ends. God is the creator of everything. You created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. If someone doesn't believe that there's one creator God, none of the rest of the Bible makes any sense, and the gospel is going to make zero sense. You've got to start by saying, listen, because here's what people say. Don Carson mentioned this. You will, you will share your Christian faith with a relative or friend, and they'll say, I'm so happy for you. Haven't you had people do this? I'm so happy that you have meaning in your life and that, that Jesus gives you a reason to get up in the morning and you go to church, you've got your club, you know, I've got my club, I, I hang out with these people over here, but you've got your church club, as long as you've got a club, as long as you've got a group of people that give you meaning and some belief system, then that's great. As long as you're not hurting anybody, that's great, right? Okay, here's the problem. We can't let that go. We have to say, no, 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 no. It's not that Christianity works for me and your club works for you. No, no, no. Here's what I'm saying. The God who made me is the God who made you. And every breath you've ever taken is on loan from that God. He gave you literal heartbeats and lungs that work. He's also given you your inner heart, your spirit, your inner self. He's given you all of that. And instead of worshiping the God who made you, which we're obligated to do, we've worshiped and served his stuff over him. And we build from that the doctrine of sin. Because if God made me, I owe things to God because I have obligations to the one who made me because he made me. And so if God made me and I owe everything to him, including my last breath, and I'm living in rebellion against him and ignoring him and living for his creation and worshiping pleasure over him, then I am living in a way that is offensive to that God. It's like breaking the laws. It, 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 it merits penalty. And therefore, because God owes you a penalty, he also loves sinners. He sent his son and then there, see the gospel comes in. Jesus lived the perfect life that you failed to live, that I've failed to live. He died a sin atoning death on the cross, taking all of the creator's wrath against your sin righteously poured it out on Jesus. Jesus absorbed it. He died. He was buried. He rose triumphant. There is no more sin left. He's taken it all. If you will trust in him, you'll be saved. You'll, you'll end up forever in his presence. But if we don't start with creation, I don't think the gospel has even the categories to make sense. Greg, thoughts on this idea? Well, it, it's absolutely essential, you know, because we've talked a lot about, you know, making sure we define terms. Like when you talk about God to people, you got to make sure Y'all are talking about the same God. Mm -hmm. Everybody, like we said, like people have their, their own ideas about who God is. And we got to make sure that when we're saying, look, you are accountable to God and Jesus is God's son and you have to trust him. We got to make sure they know which God we're talking about. Because you can go up to a, to a Hindu and say, hey, you need to believe in Jesus. He's God's son. He died for your sins. They'll be happy to believe in Jesus. And they'll take him like all their other little statues, and they'll put him on the shelf, and they'll worship him next to all the other little statues that they have. I remember having a conversation with a guy when I was pastoring down in South Georgia. Um, he, he owned a convenience store. He was a Hindu. I mean, he had a shrine like in the back that him and his family burned incense to. Like We had an hour-plus-long conversation and by the end of that, he finally started to understand that there's only one that I'm talking about. And if you're not worshiping him, you're not worshiping the right one. There's only one and he's jealous. And like, so sometimes this, this pre-evangelism, it can take a while because we got to break through all the misconceptions that people have about who God is. It's, it's a lot like, like Paul um, or, or the two places in Acts. In Acts chapter two, when Peter's preaching, 
He's got, to, like you said, that shared knowledge. He's preaching mm-hmm. to Jews. He doesn't have to explain who God is. They all know. They all agreed right. to that. But Paul in Acts chapter 17 in the city of Athens, they don't know about Christianity. And so where does Paul start? Creation. Creation. They put him on Mars Hill. And yes, he gets to Jesus in the resurrection, but he starts with the truth about who God is as the only one according to Scripture, and then he progresses to the gospel. That's so good. And, and just in modern-day language, uh, you know, if you're talking especially to someone younger, I, I, you don't say it like this necessarily, but what you're trying to get at is this. You think that a good life is being true to yourself. The true life is being true to God. The good life is being true to your Creator, not to your own feelings. So that, that, that's the basic wrongly aligned assumption. Today we think a good person is somebody who no matter what you think is true to their inner impulses and desires and they live out and authenticate their true self. That's an authentic person. That's a person with integrity. That's a good person. That's a hero. That's the kind of person we should admire and build monuments for. That, that, that's the kind of person. Whereas in the Bible, it's no, 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 no. I've got all kinds of impulses that are wrong, sinful, bad, wicked, selfish, prideful. I need to be born again, right? I need new impulses and I need to be submitted all my inner self and be true to the God who made me, not to how I think I was made in my fallen condition. So I think today we need to be contrasting the one creator God to whom we owe everything to my inner natural impulses that are oftentimes deeply corrupted and sinful and and wrong. I'd like to hear you guys. Could you help us to understand the, the holy, 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 because God's perfect in all his attributes, but this is only one that is used like that three times. He's, he's certainly all loving, but we never see God being love, 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 or merciful, merciful, merciful. Help us, why holy? Well, it goes back to what we started with, and we say God is absolutely unique. There's no one like him. Um, we have to keep that distinction in mind that, that, yes, we are called to be like God, but God's not like us. He's not like us. Um, and holiness while it is one of his attributes, in, in terms of our relationship to God, it's almost the definitive um, attribute because it helps us remember that he is God and we are not. It, it helps us not to kind of level the playing field and you know, bring God down and elevate ourselves. It, it guards us against what Adam and Eve did in the garden, thinking that you know, God's holding back. We want to be able to determine what good and evil is. And, and all. Like it, it keeps us from that. We realize God is God alone. I mean, there's, you hear it in songs, you've heard it, but God is God and I'm not. That's what holiness does. It, and, it, and, you know, Piper's talked about this and, it, you know, and he goes into a really in-depth explanation, but it's like God's, um, and he talks about glory and holiness. Like you can't ever have glory without holiness or holiness without glory. And it's like um, God's holiness is his glory concealed. God's glory is his holiness displayed or revealed. Um, and so when we think about the holiness of God, like that's the expression of all that God is as God. And it reminds, and we get that, like we realize that's not me. I, I can't even come close to that. I mean, yeah, as much as a creature can be holy as he is holy, but God is in a class by himself. There's no one else. Like he's way up here and we're way down here. And that's how it's always going to stay. And that's why he said, there's no, yeah, God is love. Love is fundamental to who God is. But in terms of approaching God, he is holy, holy, holy. And that threefold repetition draws attention to the fact that, hey, this is absolutely important, absolutely special. And so for God to be holy, yes, holy, holy, wow, that's saying something, you know, like amen and amen. But holy, 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 
That like just takes God and says, okay, he's way up here and we're way down here. And if we even think that we can come close on our own, we're fools. I know we're running low on time. A couple quick things here. Holiness is something you can attach to all of God's attributes. So mm-hmm. you can say God's love is a holy love. Yeah. It's always a holy love. Mm. His wrath is always a holy wrath. He's not, he's not angry in some sort of sinful way. He's angry in a righteous way. His, his justice is a holy justice. His mercy is a holy mercy, and on and on. Just apply it broadly. God, all that God does is marked by holiness. It, it is always marked by that, by that sense. And, and just to close things here, let's look back at the final response of these uh, individuals before God's throne. Look with me at verse 10. Let me start in verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, remember they represent, I believe, all of God's people, fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. So this is the moment where the bride is coming down the aisle and we look back and we see the groom, we see the worshipers of God and what are they doing? They are falling down. These amazing individuals are falling down before the throne. They, they, They collapse before God's throne. They're not worthy to stand. And what do they do? The crowns that God has given them, which represent authority and whatever all they might represent, they say, God, we only have what we have because you gave it to us. We're going to take our crown off our head. We're going to throw it down at your feet because all the glory and goodness you give us, and he does, he's going to glorify us, right? Those whom he justified, he glorified. God is going to glorify you. That's in the Bible. That's in Romans 8. God is going to glorify you. You say, sounds blasphemous. No, it's true. He's going to glorify you. And guess what you're going to do with all your glory? You're going to throw it right back at the feet of Jesus because none of that glory is going to ultimately terminate on me. It's not going to stop with me. Any glory we have is clearly not something we've merited. And at the end of the day, we cast the the crown right back before God's feet. And we say, God, it all goes back to you. You get the glory for our glory. We throw our crown before your, your feet because we don't ultimately deserve it. We didn't merit it. You, by your sheer grace, have saved us and we owe all and everything back to you. We need to be practicing that right now. Yes. That's, that we will do that perfectly in heaven. But Keep that should for us, be our, I'd love to. Father, we are so grateful as we come before you that um, you are holy, 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 um, the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is full of your glory. We thank you uh, tonight for this um, picture of the throne room um, that you have given us. Uh, Lord, we ask that um, our thoughts would be a little bit more like yours and our ways would be a little bit more like yours as we um, consider your holiness, your greatness. Um, and, I, and I do pray, Lord, that um, our worship of you would become more like what we see um, in heaven. And Lord, we are very grateful uh, that someday and someday very soon we're going to be like you. And when, we're, when we see you, we will be um, like the Lord Jesus in, in uh, no more sin and uh, with great rejoicing um, forevermore. And so, Lord, we commit um, this night to you and ask that the discussion around the tables would uh, remind us um, throughout the rest of uh, this weekend and the rest of our lives of, of your holiness and greatness in Jesus' name.